tell God all of my troubles when I get home. Hello and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by Chike Jeffers and Peter Adamson. Brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode will be an interview about the Haitian Revolution with Doris L. Garraway, who is Associate Professor of French at Northwestern University. Hi, Doris. Hi, Peter. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Can you firstly paint a picture for the listener of the situation in the colony of Saint-Domingue, as it was called at the time, before the revolution, particularly regarding the so-called Code Noir, which was the uh, kind of system of laws that the French imposed on their colonies. Um, how did, I mean, first of all, what was the Code Noir in more detail? And second of all, how did the French see it as consistent with their political values at the time? Okay, so I guess, um, you know, by raising the question of the Code Noir, you really go back to the 17th century. But in answering it, I'd like to talk about the 18th century, because in fact, the code existed and was sort of modified over more than a century. And by the end of the 18th century, of course, the Caribbean in general was the most valuable region, colonial possession in the Western Hemisphere. And Saint-Domingue in particular for France was produced an incredible amount of wealth for France given that it had become the world's largest producer of sugar, and it also produced half of the coffee in the world. And so this runaway success was sustainable only through an extremely brutal institution of racialized slavery. And so when we think about what the values of the, the French were in um, instituting and sort of trying to regulate slavery in the French Caribbean generally and in Saint-Domingue in particular, I think it's important to realize just how brutal um, the institution had become. And there are really two characteristics that I think distinguish it from elsewhere in the Caribbean or even in the Western Hemisphere at this time, one being the sort of numerical density of slaves in this relatively small landmass. Saint-Domingue, which represented half of the island of Hispaniola. Basically, Saint-Domingue housed more slaves than all of North America um, in order to produce more sugar than the next three sugar-producing colonies combined. Wow. So that includes Cuba, Brazil, and Jamaica. And obviously, the slaves would have massively outnumbered the white colonists, right? Precisely. Um, it's also important to recognize that the entire island was developed Essentially, all of the plains were dedicated to sugar production, and then the, the mountainous regions were um, cultivated with coffee and indigo. And so this represented, given especially how um, labor-intensive sugar production is generally, there was a massive number of slaves in Saint-Domingue. And in fact, in the latter decades of the 18th century, the, the slave population doubled from 200,000 to 400,000 slaves. Um, the proportion of slaves versus white elites in Saint-Domingue was as high as 10 to 1. So this is really a tremendous numerical imbalance. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is uh, the brutality of um, uh, the, the practice of slavery in Saint-Domingue, which was needed in order to control this. They, that is, it was justified as being needed um, in order to, 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 to keep 
um, such a large number of slaves in subjection. And so I think it's important to sort of situate the Code Noir within that history in the sense that initially the Code Noir was drafted in the, the se- late 17th century, 1685. Uh, it was promulgated in 1685. It was actually drafted a few years before. Um, but as a means by which to assert royal authority over the practice of slavery in the French Caribbean. And of course, at this time, uh, slave owners were basically doing whatever they wanted. There was a sense in which the colonies were a wayward region outside of royal authority. And so uh, the crown wanted to reassert its sovereignty and in fact limit the power of life and death that masters exercise over their slaves. And so there were certainly provisions that were presented as though they were progressive, even humanitarian, in the sense that limitations were placed on the master's ability to sort of do violence um, on the bodies of slaves, to kill their slaves. And there were provisions in the Code War that would enable enslaved people to be admitted to uh, the French social body as French subjects. And that was through the process of manumission. And so the Code Noir enabled through certain articles, manumission of slaves, either through marriage or by other means, um, and their admission into class of free citizens, French subjects. Would you say that part of the function of the Code Noir was, as it were, to help the French live with themselves about what they were doing? So were they telling themselves, we're not just uh, letting the slavers do whatever they want, we're imposing some kind of uh, control over this? And ensuring that this is a humanitarian, supposedly humanitarian treatment. Well, yeah, I mean, so certainly there was an attempt to to legitimate slavery. At this point, the French crown had accepted slavery, but they wanted to certainly present a veneer of justification uh, for the practice by uh, suggesting that, number one, it was a means of Christianizing slaves. And number two, that they would essentially ensure the material being of slaves and the care of slaves by imposing certain restrictions and certain requirements on on slave masters regarding rest, regarding you know care, um, medical care, uh, food, and and various sorts of things of that of that nature. But I think what's important to recognize is that over the course of a hundred years, between 1685 and the end of the 18th century, slave masters really pushed back on the Code Noir and it was essentially modified, uh, that is, colonial administrators also modified the, the law such that by the end of the 18th century, the, the brutality of slavery had really reached a point that even colonial administrators and royal administrators wanted to intervene once again to rein in the violence of of masters and their their ability to essentially murder their slaves, right? And so on the one hand, the Code Noir might have been, I mean, it certainly reflected the desire on the part of the French state to, to regulate, to rationalize slavery in certain ways, and to bring it into line with its somewhat assimilationist policy towards indigenous peoples, not just in the Caribbean, of course, but also in North America. Uh, the French were always more apt to consider non-Europeans as potential French subjects, right? Um, there were avenues um, through which non-Europeans could access entry, you know, into the French uh, social body. So I think that's important. But the French Saint-Domingue did not necessarily <laughs> live up to those expectations by the end of the 18th century. In fact, um, the situation was quite dire and colonists and slave owners vehemently defended their rights, even to murder their own slaves in order to essentially preserve 
the very institution of slavery, they felt that any limits on their control of their slaves would in fact spell the end of white domination somehow. What kind of texts do we have by the colonists themselves in the time leading up to the revolution? And what can we learn about the situation from those texts? Well, this is interesting. There are a variety of, of different printed sources that were authored by either colonists, slave owners born in Saint-Domingue, or by those who settled there and established plantations and felt a sense of membership within that society. And so I think what's interesting about at least what appears in the latter part of the 18th century on the eve of the Haitian Revolution is that we see there is a sort of influence of the Enlightenment in the sense that, yes, you know, Many colonists did legitimate slavery with accusations that Blacks were fundamentally constitutionally inferior or even of a different species and whatnot. But we see more and more the influence of the Enlightenment in the sense that writers were willing to admit that slaves were human and they were willing to criticize the abuses and the immense violence of the slave regime. Um, but they did so in the interests of slavery, not of abolition. They felt as though only by reforming the practice of slavery and the, and the abuses that were rampant could um, France maintain the institution and preserve it, the, the profits that flowed from it. So that's one element that we see in the work of various writers. I forgot, I mean, Victor de Malouet, who was a a planter, a colonial administrator, and also the minister of the, of the Navy and the colonies under Napoleon. And other travelers such as Baron de Wimphen, Giraud de Chantron, made arguments of that kind. Then you also have what's very striking to me, which is increasingly a desire to describe colonial society and slavery itself in a way that really eschews what we might expect to hear in a text that's basically describing a life of, of laborers and in the sense that labor and work and violence is basically eschewed in favor of a discussion of slaves as cultural subjects, as real, as, as indigenous subjects, and as sort of potentially available objects of the sexual interest of the master class. And I say that partially in recognition of the fact that interracial sexual intimacies were a characteristic feature of French slave societies since almost since their institution. And for a long time, these relationships were blamed for the production of essentially a class of free people of color. And they were, the white population was shamed or, or felt a sense of shame or, or guilt over the practice of sort of what was called libertinage, you could call it miscegenation and, and sort of illicit interracial intimacies. But what you find in the, eight, the late 18th century is increasingly a willingness on the part of French colonial writers to avow those desires and to even defend them and to represent slaves and free people of color in a feminized manner in such a way that they appear to be even themselves desiring or accommodating of these kinds of relationships. And so you find this representation of French colonial society in writers such as Iliardo Berthey, who published a very influential work on um, Saint-Domingue in 1776. Also, Moreau de Saint-Méry published probably the most significant multi-volume work describing essentially the colony of Saint-Domingue and all of its complexity. 
which included a, a substantial portion on sort of ethnographic portrait of Sundamari. It's really remarkable the way in which he really um, isolates the cultural attributes of uh, that are shared between and across the various subgroups and ethnic classes of Creole slave society in order really to imagine a kind of unity um, that exists and even a kind of filial identification among the, the different classes that ultimately follows from what were forced or enforced relationships, relationships of violence and intimacy hmm. that characterize slave society of Sundaman. Right. Okay. So that's a kind of picture of the ideology that the slaves were up against when they revolted in the colony. Something that we talked about in our episode on the Haitian Revolution is the possibility that some of these same Enlightenment ideas that are detectable in these works by colonists themselves drove the revolution, helped inspire it, were embraced by the leaders of the revolution. What's your take on that in terms of how important, I mean, to put it sort of bluntly, how important was philosophy and French philosophy in triggering the revolution? Yeah, well, I would first just back up and say one thing about the ideology you mentioned, because it's important to recognize that even as elite white colonists were depicting those whom they subjected to slavery or racial discrimination in terms, in sort of feminizing and sort of romantic terms, one might say, the, the reality on the ground was quite different in the sense that the writers I mentioned, really all of the writers I mentioned, endorsed an extremely rigid, racially discriminatory code of laws that instituted a rigid color line mm -hmm. between whites and free people of color in particular. And so I just want to make sure that's very clear that in addition to having this extreme violence between masters and slaves, we have a very severe racially discriminatory regime. So when we talk about the ideas of, of the Haitian Revolution, how important philosophy was, I would say that it's an interesting question because for a long time, you know, there's been a sort of debate about to what extent, you know, the Haitian Revolution was generated by or sparked by Enlightenment ideas or ideas arriving from uh, the French Revolution. And so revolutionary republicanism and the rights of man and this kind of thing were not required in order for slaves or free people of color to either desire to resist or actually counter their subjection in, in real, in revolutionary ways, one might say, in the sense that there was a history of resistance on the part of slaves since slavery was instituted through various means, slaves um, refused uh, to remain in captivity, either through escaping the system of slavery, through suicide. They resisted through other means, poisonings, abortions, through means of magic or the occult. You know, there are all kinds of ways in which slaves, and, and we have documented evidence of um, maronage, which is you know, the presence of small sort of encampments of slaves in the mountains. As early as 1705, there was the creation of the Marais-Chaussée, which was a special force, like a military force, that incidentally free people of color were eventually forced to be conscripted into in order to carry out the pursuit and tracking of escaped slaves. So a resistance to slavery predated um, the French Revolution. So I think clearly, you know, it was not a requirement. Um, that being said, 
Um, the fact that when the French Revolution broke out, these ideas were very much in circulation in the colonies, in Saint-Domingue. The other thing is that even when slaves did revolt after 1789, the earliest insurrections were in 1791, in both cases, they did not justify their resistance through the discourse of the rights of man or this kind of republicanist sort of language. So what we see is actually the use of royal iconography and references to the king as essentially authorizing their their resistance. Very often claims that the king actually wanted them to be free or wanted them to have more time off or whatnot. And so they were simply acting in order to claim the rights that had already been extended to them by the royal authority. So that's kind of interesting to point out. However, the fact that they may have avowed royalism, it doesn't necessarily mean that they were immune to Republican ideals or the language of the rights of man. And so I think they did come into contact with that language and those ideas through various means, be they just the talk of sailors and with whom they might have come into contact, um, or uh, the pamphlet literature of certain learned organizations, such as the Société des Amis des Noirs, which was working at least theoretically in the interests of, if not abolishing slavery, ameliorating the, the, the condition of slaves, um, as well as the free people of color who were themselves extremely receptive to these, these ideas and were beginning to articulate their own desire for full civil rights and equality with whites through the language of the rights of man. So the ideas were clearly important and present, but rather than representing the, the sole influence um, or the definitive influence on slaves and free people of color, I would say that the ideas of the French Revolution simply contributed to what was really like a perfect storm of circumstances that enabled slaves and free people of color to sort of galvanize and, and organize and become even more inspired, um, also because of the dissension among whites. The, the French Revolution had already begun to break up and to widen certain divisions among uh, the, the white population in Santa Max. So there was a sort of revolutionary faction. There was also a counter-revolutionary faction. But I think it's important to realize when we talk about ideas that directionality matters, as well as the different ways in which certain ideas were interpreted by different subjects, by different groups. And so when we talk about whether French revolutionary ideas were important, I mean, it's also important to recognize that when slaves stood up for their freedom, that had an impact on France as well, on the French revolutionaries, right? There was a profound impact when you had the first deputies from Saint-Domingue, one white, one mixed race, and one black appear and, and speak before the French National Assembly. So that matters. But then there's also the question of sort of how these ideas um, impacted different groups, right? And what they wanted from these ideas, which did not necessarily align. And even though freedom, for example, was universally claimed by all of the groups in contention, whether, you know, whites or uh, the enslaved, free people of color, there were still differences in the ways in which that ideal would be ultimately pursued and differences between the leaders and the masses in terms of what compromises they were willing to accept in order to pursue the struggle. And so we see that the people were very often at variance with the leaders on that point. 
Um, do, do, would you say yeah. that the, the kind of underlying similarity between the French Revolution and the Haitian Revolution, and that they both have this kind of rhetoric of universal values, like the rights of man, right? But, I mean, at least in some of the rhetoric that was used by Louverture and other leaders of the revolution, the point wasn't just leave Haiti alone or leave us alone here in Haiti, but rather we are going to create a society here that obeys rules that should be obeyed anywhere. That's right. You've essentially defined the nature of universality and why when we talk about like these abstractions like liberty and equality, you know, I think they derive their force precisely because of what you just said. When you say, I am fighting for liberty, you're not necessarily claiming for your own individual freedom, right? Or even potentially the freedom of your group. You know, you're essentially saying all people have the right to be free. That right is universal. And so by making arguments in terms of these kinds of abstract ideals, the revolutionary actors essentially tried to radicalize their movement. You could say this is particular to a certain kind of intellectual inheritance in the French Revolution, for example. I mean, the fact that the rights that were being claimed, liberty and equality, but also like property and resistance to oppression and that kind of thing, it situates the French Revolution in terms of a very specific lineage of European natural rights philosophy and social contract theory. So we can definitely say that that philosophy was traveling to a certain extent. Certain ideas associated with that philosophy were traveling, you know, and I'm thinking about figures such as Locke and Rousseau, <laughs> um, whose ideas are very apparent in the, in the French revolutionaries. But that being said, it doesn't mean that if you claim the right to freedom or equality, that somehow you are yourself, you, know, you have to be a sort of learned follower of those thinkers. Those ideas became extremely contagious and obviously very appealing to free people of color and slaves, and they exploited them. Um, thinking about the figures that we looked at the most in the past two episodes, it seems like there's a kind of paradox, especially with this figure, the Baron de Vate, who is on the one hand endorsing, apparently, some of these universal ideals, but on the other hand is supporting this hereditary monarchy that is set up in the wake of the French Revolution. And from our point of view, it may seem that there's at least a tension there, maybe a paradox, maybe outright hypocrisy. How would you understand that, like the sort of um, wedding of the ideals of the French Revolution to, uh, which obviously was an anti-monarchial uprising in France with this um, monarchy that was established in the north of Haiti? Yeah, well, I guess I would first say that the so-called universalism of the French Revolution was already somewhat contradictory or had already significant limitations um, in, in reality, in practice. And I think we see that already in the 1789 Declaration of the Rights of Man, in which even if one believes in the universality of the principles that one is professing, um, that does not necessarily mean that they will be universally ap applicable. That in order to guarantee the rights that are claimed, one essentially had to be part of a state um, or a polity that would essentially endorse them and create illegal means by which to defend them. So universality really had limits. And so obviously it didn't apply universally. It was only really in, in France 
initially. And similarly, universalism itself is perhaps a logical fallacy. There is a kind of paradox within the assumption of universal ideas on the basis of the notion that one can universalize the idea of man. There's not a sort of unmarked, ideal, abstract human, right? We, we are all particulars in some way. And so, you know, one finds that tension already between um, the profession of ideas that are claimed as universal and, in fact, the relationship between the speaker of the universal and the speaker's particularism, which may very well be um, endorsed through under the guise of the universal. So the idea that the universal ultimately is always a particular, right? So I think in the case of the Haitian Revolution, we see those paradoxes um, working out and those tensions. Also in the sense that these ideas don't necessarily mean the same thing to everyone. So liberty, there were really two meanings of liberty that were in tension during the Haitian Revolution, probably more so than in France. One of which was essentially a somewhat more Republican understanding of liberty as political freedom and, and equal rights, political rights. And so that was endorsed by free people of color who were basically making a claim to equality with elite whites. And they wanted a place in the republic. They wanted to be represented and they wanted you know, themselves to participate in their government, right? And so there's that strain of Haitian revolutionary activism. And then there's also the, the strain of, of anti-slavery abolitionism, which is basically claiming freedom from slavery. These don't necessarily overlap. And in the case of the unfolding of the Haitian Revolution, we see the way in which ultimately the unifying rhetoric of freedom ultimately served the interests of obtaining territorial sovereignty as a means by which to guarantee the abolition of slavery and the preservation of racial equality. So this is so, basically how we wind up with this regime of Henri Christophe, which is being supported by Vate, where it's like, well, we need a powerful central authority in order to secure these kinds of freedoms, right? Right. Well, in other words, yeah, I, I think there are a lot of reasons. I mean, you see it unfolding in the text themselves. I, I know it's not necessarily a, a law, you know, of nature that this must it must happen this way, but you know, because of the enormous military um, sacrifice that was required in order to essentially drive out the French, sovereignty was seen as the only means of guaranteeing either of the freedoms, really, but but principally the freedom from slavery and the ideal of racial equality. That is where the two, if you will, factions in the Haitian revolution, the, the sort of the free people of color and, and the former slaves, were able to meet. That was the common ground. But precisely the fact of the, the military structure of command and social organization that was necessary to defeat the French, that essentially underwrote the necessity for what the founders felt was a strong central government, essentially political absolutism and authoritarian command. So the, the Haitian government began essentially as an empire. And then we see the emergence of the monarchy under Henry Christophe after the, the state 
breaks up into two. Christoph essentially continues in the tradition of authoritarian monarchy, establishes a kingdom. Now, why is that not in contradiction with ideas of natural right? Well, it was never in contradiction. Even the proponents of revolution in France did not necessarily anticipate that they would depose the monarchy and establish a republic. Nor is it the case that republicanism or liberal democracy is inconsistent with the practice of slavery. I think what mattered for the leaders in the North and someone like Baal de Vete was defending this regime and really articulating more than any other writer, the rationale for the monarchy is not only the need to defend and preserve Haitian sovereignty, but also the way in which sovereignty extended to like cultural and social and civilizational aspects of Haiti. They really felt that in order to be free, you could not simply say you were free, although they did that a lot. They, they published a lot of works that really are about reiterating the claim to Haitian independence sovereignty and then sort of the legitimacy of the Haitian Revolution and, and demanding recognition. But really, they felt that the only way to command recognition was to make advances on the level of civilizational equality with European powers. And so they had to maintain a certain level of economic production to sustain the revenues that would be required to defend the state, as well as to grow a kind of material and cultural edifice that would enable Haiti to be respected and to, to essentially be equal to the European nation states. Okay, well, I mean, one last question, which I think comes out of what you just said, which is that given the kind of... Uh, large ambitions and also the large rhetoric and ideals being uh, embraced here by the revolutionaries. There's yet another tension, which is that they weren't really, practically speaking, in a position to export this revolution beyond Haiti. Even if they'd wanted to, they probably couldn't have. And for example, Vate is quite explicit. We are not in the business of trying to foment revolution in other islands, also in the Caribbean or elsewhere. So the legacy of the Haitian revolution doesn't seem like it's a direct attempt to uh, demolish slavery in nearby territories. Given that, what is the legacy of the Haitian Revolution more broadly for this period of Africana thought and history? Haitians did provide material support to Simon Bolivar's campaign in Venezuela, uh, which was predicated on the idea that he would pursue the abolition of slavery. But I think Really, the, Haiti represented an example at this time in uh, the Atlantic world that slaves could not only achieve freedom, but they could govern themselves and they could sustain and create their own societies, even generate wealth for themselves. I mean, this was an immense experiment. It was immensely impactful for certainly the colonial powers of the time in the Atlantic world who felt incredibly threatened by the Haitian independence. And for decades, pro-slavery interests in France maintained the desire to essentially reconquer Haiti. And they published many tracts describing how this would happen. <laughs> so simply by virtue of the fact that the Haitians stood up, they fought for their own sovereignty, they established their own sovereignty. You know, that had an incredible effect. So the, the legacy of the Haitian Revolution, it's really hard to sort of 
encapsulate it succinctly, but certainly for African descended peoples throughout the Atlantic world, for colonial powers and sort of the history of Republican revolution and reformist revolution in what we call the West did ultimately sustain an impact from what occurred in Haiti. It would be difficult to overstate the significance of the establishment of a Black nation state in the Atlantic world at this time. Okay, great. So that's a good note to end on. Next, we are going to be turning back towards the English-speaking world because we're going to be looking at the foundation of uh, early Black institutions in the United States, especially in the northern part of the United States in the early 19th century. For now, I'll thank Doris Garraway very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much, Peter, for having me. And please join me and Chike next time for the history of African philosophy. I'm gonna tell God.